Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we will discuss planning under Secure 2.0 and the proposed regulations. By way of background, this episode will discuss the change one, the changes under Secure 2.0 and the proposed regulations, two, changes in the required distributions, three, the additional benefits of Roth conversions, four, planning for disabled and chronically ill beneficiaries, five, how to use charitable remainder trust to replicate the stretch, and six, greater flexibility of trust under the proposed regulations and more. Today, we're privileged to hear from Bruce Steiner, who's of counsel at Kleinberg, Kaplan, Wolf, and Cohn, based in New York. By way of background, Bruce has over 40 years of experience in the areas of taxation, estate planning, business succession planning, and estate trust administration. He's a frequent lecturer at continuing education programs for bar associations, CPAs, and other professionals. He's also the co-author of CCH's Roth IRA Answer Book. Bruce is also a commentator for Lineberg Information Services, is a member of the editorial uh, board of Trust and Estates, is a technical advisor for Ed Slot's IRA advisor, and has written numerous articles for estate planning, DNA tax management, estates gift and trust journal, and many, many more. Bruce has served on the professional advisory boards of several major charitable organizations and has been named a New York Metro Super Lawyer by Super Lawyer since 2010 and recognized by Best Lawyer since 2018. Today, Bruce will be speaking on planning under Secure 2.0 and the proposed regulations. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Bruce. Jonathan, thanks for having me back. Uh, We're going to talk about planning for retirement benefits in light of Secure 2.0, as well as Secure 1.0, and as well as the proposed regulations. Uh, There's a lot of material, and we only have a half hour, so we're really going to have to make this a, a quick run through just just because we could spend a whole day on it. So if there's anything that you want to discuss in greater detail, uh, we'll have to do that some other some other time. Uh, to, do, to compare to un, we have to first understand how IRAs work. A traditional IRA in general, the contributions are are deductible. And the money in there, while it's in there, is not taxable. And when it comes out, it generally is taxable. A Roth is the opposite. In a Roth, the contributions are are not deductible. And the earnings within the Roth are not taxable. And when it comes out, with a few exceptions, it's it's tax-free. So at a constant tax rate, you would think that they're identical. And we'll go into when that is and when that isn't. Uh, in, a, in an IRA, with a few exceptions, you control the investments. In an employer plan, it depends on the plan. Sometimes you have a lot of control. Sometimes you have a little control and occasionally no control at all. There are contribution limits. And in an IRA, it's 6500 a year, 7500 if you're age if you've reached age 50. 
And if you put in more, it's subject. There's an excise tax on the on the additional on the excess. The defined contribution limit is sixty six thousand a year, and the four hundred one k limit is twenty two thousand five hundred thirty thousand if you're over age fifty. And so, if you are able to put in as much as you're able to put in, and you start early and you let it grow for a very long time, uh, it's going to be a very large amount of money even if you invested average minusly, and we would hope that on average people would could invest it averagely, but even if you invested a little below average, you will still end up with a great deal of money, especially if you start early. In a traditional IRA, the benefits are part yours and part the government's. The, the government share is the tax rate and your share is the rest of it. Your share grows tax-free. Don't think of it as tax-deferred. Think of it as tax-free. So let's say you're in a 40% bracket. You put in $6,500. It grows to $65,000. You take it out. You pay your tax. You have $39,000 left. But if you, if and your so your share of the IRA, $3,900, grew to $39,000 tax-free, not tax-deferred. It's you're not trading capital gains for ordinary income. Your share is tax free because if you didn't make the contribution, you'd have paid the tax up front. You'd have had thirty nine hundred dollars left. It wouldn't grow to quite thirty nine thousand dollars, no matter how careful you were to invest entirely in stocks that didn't pay dividends, because sooner or later, one of those stocks will pay a dividend or will get taken over for cash. Or maybe you, your investment allocation is not 100% in non-dividend stocks. Uh, uh, you'd need a lot of other money to, to invest in other kinds of things to be able to do that. And for, for most middle and upper middle class clients, the IRA is the largest asset. And so you can't really do that. A Roth is just a larger traditional. Suppose you put 6500 Suppose you put $6,500 into a Roth IRA. Again, since a traditional is part yours and part the government's, that's as if you contributed close to $11,000 to a traditional, except you're not allowed to do it. So everything else being equal, the Roth, the Roth always wins. Uh, there's an additional benefit to the Roth if you can convert or withdraw at a lower tax rate. But if you would have to convert or withdraw at a higher tax rate, that's a countervailing factor and a, and a disadvantage to the Roth. So what some people do is they is while they're working and they're in a high bracket, they use the traditional. And when they retire, if they're in a lower bracket, they, they fill up the lower brackets with Roth conversions. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. By converting to a Roth, if you have other money with which to pay the tax, it's like putting in the amount of the tax into the Roth because the Roth is all yours. So let's say you're retired, you're in a 30% bracket, you've got a $100,000 traditional IRA and $30,000 cash and you convert, you now have a $100,000 Roth IRA and let's say it doubles to 200 over the next so many years. If you didn't convert, your traditional would still grow to the same 200,000. You'd withdraw it and you'd pay the tax and have 140,000 left. But your taxable account in the very same 
for the very same reason, it grows to less than 60000 because you pay tax on the income and gains each year. By converting and paying the tax out of other income, you've effectively made a substantial additional contribution. So when do you convert? It gets complicated if your tax bracket is higher now and it'll be lower later. It's complicated if converting all at once bunches the income into a higher bracket. So for, for, for most people, you might spread the conversion, you might convert a little bit each year. If you're always going to be in that top bracket because you have plenty of other income, you'd probably just convert all at once, or maybe not at all if you're going to just leave your IRA to charity. So many people convert up to the top of the 12% bracket. There's often a window between when you retire and when you turn 70 and Social Security benefits have to begin, you know, I literally have to take it, but you don't get any additional benefit by waiting past 70. The, the widening of the joint return brackets through 2025 lets you convert at no more than 24% up to about $364,000. So somebody with a mini, with a several million dollars IRA, maybe you have a $10 million IRA and you don't have much other income you can convert up to 364,000 of taxable income and still be in, in what I would call the middle tax brackets of up to 24. Uh, some other changes, secure 1.0, it's sort of like World War I, it didn't get called that until World War II. So now the original secure is secure one. It used to be you couldn't contribute to a traditional if you were gonna be 70 and a half that year, that's repealed any age. There are backdoor Roth conversions since there are income limits to contribute to a Roth or to deduct contributions to a traditional. You can, you can at any age, at any income, you can make a non-deductible contribution to a traditional and then convert to a, to a Roth. Uh, the problem is if you have other traditional IRAs, your basis gets probate, prorated. So to avoid that, if you're in an employer plan and the plan allows, accepts rollovers, you can take your existing traditional and roll it into your employer's uh, plan, which you may or may not be allowed to do and you may or may not want to do, but it's a possibility to, to keep in mind. And some employer plans allow, in addition to the deductible, to in addition to the 401k portion that's either deductible or, or or can go into a into a Roth they allow they allow additional contributions to the to the plan on an on an after-tax basis um, now now let's get into the changes in the distribution rule so it used to be 70 and a half year was the year of your first required distribution and and in the case of the first year you could defer it another three months and just double up in the second year. Secure one increased it to 72. Secure two, it is now 73 for people turning 70, turning 73 now or after this year. And in about 10 years or so from now, it'll become 75. So that gives people a lot more deferral because they don't have to take money out as soon. And it gives people additional years that they can do Roth conversions 
at lower brackets because they don't have to yet take RMDs. So that's something to keep in mind. There's some exceptions to RMDs. No, no required distributions from a Roth IRA under Secure 2. There's no RMDs from a Roth account within an employer plan. In the past, there was. So you'd have to roll it out into a Roth IRA. That's no longer a concern. And if you're not a 5% owner, you can defer until retirement. And, and interestingly, if you own exactly 5%, you're not a 5% owner because the 5% owner means more than 5%. Uh, char qualified charitable contributions, QCDs. Once you turn 70 and a half, and that 70 and a half did not change to 72 or 73, you may, you may direct up to $100,000 a year out of your IRA directly to charity. Now, why would you do that instead of just taking your required distribution and, and then writing your own check to charity? Well, under, under the 2017 Act, at least through 2025, the standard deduction is way higher than it had been before, and the deduction for state and local taxes is way less than it had been before. So almost everybody takes the standard deduction. So it lets you double up. You get your standard deduction and you get the effect of a charitable deduction by having money go directly from your IRA to charity. And I really do think that is encouraged charitable contributions because people don't feel it that much because it's they're not directly writing the check. They're, they're having the money come out of some account that they're probably not going to use most of it for a while. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to uh, to consider. If you're not yet 70 and a half, you can you can replicate that by every several years itemizing and donating a big slug of money to a donor advised fund and then making your charitable uh, grants out of the donor advised fund until it runs low and then and then you can replenish it. Uh, RMDs, it used to be, life expectancy for any designated beneficiary and trusts could generally use the oldest beneficiary. And if you didn't have a designated beneficiary, if you left it to your estate, uh, it was the five-year rule if you died before your required beginning date and, and on or after your required beginning date, it was over your life expectancy as if you hadn't died. And, and now we have uh, a new a new category called an eligible designated beneficiary, which is a disabled or chronically ill person. So if you're just a what Natalie Cho calls a PODB, a plain old designated beneficiary who's not an EDB, it's there's a 10-year rule. It's got to be taken out within by the end of the 10th year following the IRA owner's death. And under the proposed regulations, if the IRA owner had reached is a required beginning date. You have to take some annual distributions in the first nine years because it's only a proposed regulation. The IRS has waived that through the end of 2023. We'll see what happens afterwards. Uh, if somebody died before 2019, the beneficiary, the designated beneficiary, still got still gets the life expectancy. A stretch, but once they die, the 10-year rule kicks in. So somebody died in 2018 and their their child gets the life expectancy stretch. If they died before they reached their life expectancy, 
whoever they leave it to, the 10-year rule kicks, kicks in. Uh, so we'll probably have more Roth conversions because if the 10-year rule applies, let's say somebody has a $2 million IRA and the beneficiary has to take out 200000 a year for 10 years, that's going to throw them into a higher, a much higher tax bracket. So the IRA owner may want to do some Roth conversions to avoid, to avoid the bunching. Uh, it used to be you would leave IRAs often to or in trust for grandchildren because they had a longer life expectancy. That's no longer relevant due to the 10-year rule. You won't have as much life insurance to fund to pay the estate tax on the on the IRA because it's got to come out within 10 years anyway, most of the time. But there are new uses of, of life insurance we'll cover later. An EDB, an eligible designated beneficiary, spouses, minor children, disabled and chronically ill, or somebody not more than 10 years younger than the IRA owner, still gets the life expectancy stretch. Uh, once that person dies, the 10-year rule kicks in. And if it's a minor child, and nobody really wants a minor child to gain control at a young age, if it's a minor child, uh, the 10-year rule kicks in when they reach 21. And nobody really, really wants a minor child to, to gain control at 21 and to, to receive all the money by, by 31. So that's not of much use. So the planning technique, it used to be if one child was disabled and one wasn't, you leave the IRA to the one who wasn't. And and other assets to the for the disabled child to avoid the um, uh, so that the other so that the non-disabled child could spread it out and the disabled child you, you wanted money in trust rather than outright well, you, well we want we want everybody's money to be in trust rather than outright to keep it out of their estates and protect against their creditors and spouses but if you leave the IRA in trust for the disabled child it gets the life expectancy stretch which the other, the non-disabled child can't get. That's a key, key takeaway. The definition of disabled is the same as it is for social security, which is a very difficult test to satisfy. If you're getting social security, you're get you're you're for sure you've qual you've qualified. So you you would provide for a disabled person in trust. Uh, Usually, there's a disabled person probably don't want having money outright. Again, we provide for all of our clients' children in trust rather than outright. But a trust for disabled, in order to qualify for the life expectancy trust, it's got to be a one beneficiary trust during that person's lifetime. Well, you could have other beneficiaries if they're also disabled or chronically ill, but that doesn't happen very often. And then once that person dies, then the 10 year rule kicks in. So if you have a disabled child or, or maybe niece or nephew that's a that's a, a really a thing to consider is to leave the ira and trust for them and it gets the life expectancy stretch uh pre-secure pre two if you had a charity as a remainder beneficiary you didn't have a designated beneficiary for a dis, for a disabled or chronically ill that is that the charity is is disregarded and it still gets the life expectancy stretch. That's that's helpful because many people with a disabled child, there's some charity, some nonprofit that was that was helping that person, and they want that charity to get the to get the remainder. Or maybe they've already provided for their other children sufficiently, so they want charity as the remainder. Now, our clients generally provide for their children in trust rather than outright. So, for the very same reasons, you might want to leave 
the IRA in trust rather than outright. It keeps it out of the child's estate and protects against their creditors and predators and spouses and Medicaid. The trade-off is that trusts pay tax and higher tax rates, and there's some administrative effort to administer a trust, and you need to find trustees. Um, so one solution to the higher trust rate tax rates for trusts is to do Roth conversions while you're alive, especially if you have a window when you can do it at not too high a rate. And because otherwise the trustees either accumulate the money and pay tax at the top right at the top right, or they distribute and lose the asset protection of the trust. Uh, we spend a lot of time dealing with state income taxation of trusts, which rent go up to about 13 and in, in California, and I think about 14 or so in New York City and states like Oregon and, Min and Minnesota, and there's a few others that are in the very high single digits. Uh, uh, Maryland is in the high single digits, and, and quite a lot of states are in the you know seven or so range. Uh, and different states have different ways of determining when a, when a trust is a resident trust in their state. I live in New Jersey. Jonathan lives in New York. I create a trust. Jonathan is the trustee. Uh, it's not taxable in either state. Uh, New York and New Jersey look to where the where the grantor is located. Uh, and New York, even if a New Yorker creates the trust, if if the trustee is not in New York and there's no assets or income from New York, New York won't ta tax it. With New York has a throwback rule. Uh, other other states, about half the states, tax the trust based on where the trustee is located. So that's easy. You just don't have the trustee in that in a, in a state that'll tax the trust because the trust is in that state. For for regular trust, this isn't all that important. If I've got a a million dollar trust of other assets and it's producing I don't know thirty thousand dollars a year of income, uh, stocks yield I don't know maybe a little less than two, and bonds bonds were yielding close to zero for a while. Now they're I don't know four or five whatever it is. So a mixed a mixed portfolio maybe at page three. So you got thirty thousand a year of income. Maybe you don't really care about state income tax on thirty thousand a year, but in a traditional IRA, it's all it's in general it's almost it's all in taxable income. So you really do care about it. So you really have to look at it. New York has a throwback rule with a bunch of exceptions. California has a throwback rule that's much more comprehensive than than New York's, but the throwback rule only applies when the money gets distributed to somebody in California. So if nobody needs the money for a long time, it's still a tremendous benefit. Um, you can have a conduit trust where all of the distributions from the IRA have to have to be paid out on a on a, on a current on a current basis. Uh, and you get to disregard subsequent beneficiaries. The problem is that it forces out all the IR, all the IRA. So it, it it doesn't have much it doesn't have much uh, much purpose. Uh, with with the exception of maybe if it's for an L, an EDB where where they where you get the life expectancy stretch. Uh, if it's a if it's a conduit trust or or occasionally for a spouse. Because if it's a spouse, you get to recalculate the spouse's life expectancy each year. So a conduit trust for a spouse is sort of a trade-off between the rollover where the spouse controls it and a discretionary trust where the spouse has no control. And it's sort of a middle ground and the rollover is less valuable due to the due to the tenure, tenure rule in, in secure. Uh, 
our, our normal trust is what, what everybody calls an accumulation trust where the trustees have discretion to accumulate the money in the trust. They don't have to, they can distribute it out to beneficiaries, but they may, they may accumulate. Uh, in determining who the beneficiaries of a trust are, you, 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 a major change under the proposed regulations is you disregard appoint, permissible appointees under a power of appointment. We normally want to give beneficiaries broad powers of appointment if we're leaving money in trust for a child just for asset protection, but we want the child to control it. We let the child appoint, meaning give or leave the trust assets to anybody they want except themselves. And you and you and you get to and you get to uh, you get you get to um, you get to, you get to uh, disregard you you get to disregard uh, under the proposed reg before before the proposed regulations a broad power of appointment disqualified your trust because the child could appoint to charity the child could appoint to somebody. Um, who was older, so you had to el eliminate charity, you had to eliminate anybody older than the measuring life. All of that is all of that is gone because under the proposed under the proposed regulations, you ignore permissible appointees. So you it makes your drafting much, much, much easier if you're providing for charity. Uh, the beneficiaries of a trust have to be identifiable. Class additions are permitted, like a new grandchild being born. Uh, being able to modify a trust, I got to call you back. Um, trust modifications are okay if you add beneficiaries; they don't count until after they've been they've been added. Uh, the thing I wanted to save my last few minutes for a charitable remainder trust replicates the stretch. Let's say I, I'm leaving my my IRA to my to my uh, child who's got to be at least 25. If I leave it to them directly or in a conventional trust, it all has to be paid out within 10 years. If instead I leave it to them in a charitable remainder trust, which is a trust that the child gets a percentage of the value of the trust each year, at least 5%. So at 25, it would be 5%. If you're like around 40-ish, it's, it's about 6%. And then when they die, whatever's left goes to charity. And the value of the charity's interest has to be at least 10% of the initial value of the trust. This is a wonderful, wonderful technique. It replicates the stretch. The benefit of being able to spread the payments out over the beneficiary's lifetime is likely to outweigh the loss of 10% of the value to charity. And a lot of people are comfortable with charity and they don't really care if some of the value goes to charity and they certainly don't care if some of the value goes to charity if it's the government's money that's going to charity because the beneficiary is even better off or equally well off as it would have as he or she would have been otherwise so so you should really 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 consider that if you've got a beneficiary who's relatively young who's going to need distributions who doesn't expect to have a taxable estate, uh, is at low risk of creditors and divorce or Medicaid. And when there are other assets available for one-off needs, because the charitable remainder trust, the payments are, are defined by a formula, 
So there's going to be one year when the person might need more money to buy a house or a boat or a car. So there has to be some other assets available. The trust is itself tax exempt, but the distributions are taxable to the extent the trust had income. And the, since the IRA is, is generally all income uh, for, for an 20 or so, 15 or 20 years, the distributions will all be considered IRA, IRA money, ordinary income. And after that, it depends on the character of the trust's income. Uh, the trade-off really is that the, the CRT is inflexible and, and with a very narrow ex exception, the distributions have to go outright. So you need it's got to be a beneficiary who you don't think is going to have a taxable estate, somebody who's going to who's going to need the money, you probably use the money. Uh, but that comes up more often than you might think. Uh, um, it's hard to have a charitable trust with two lives. For example, if your children, if you've got two children two years apart, they've got to be at least 38 and 36 for it to work. And then you can do it. You can have a trust uh, or to the two of them equally or in full to the survivor or you can have first to one and then to the and then to the uh, other you can also do a 20-year charitable remainder trust uh which would be a, a i don't know why i said april but the rate is the same today you could do a 20-year trust with about an 11 percent payout but you wouldn't do that complexity because you get 10 years without such a trust a charitable remainder trust file annual tax returns on a special form, and in some states they have to re register with the attorney general. A real trap in New Jersey, in New Jersey, they are not tax exempt. They are taxed like any other trust, which means if you've got a million dollar IRA, the whole million dollars would be income in, for New Jersey in the in the year it's collected. The workaround is just, just have your trustee be somebody who does not live in New Jersey. There's 49 other, other states you can pick a trustee from if you're a, for somebody in New Jersey and there's no there's no throwback rule and there won't be any other kinds of in, any real estate or anything because it's an IRA so just keep that in mind uh missed IRDs they used to be a 50 percent penalty uh if you didn't take your RMD and you could ask that they waive it the history of the world is I've never heard of anyone who's requested to waive it has not been granted it's now 25% and it's 10% if you correct it timely. One, one wonders whether waivers will be as, as easy to get as they had been before if the penalty is, is lower. But you should take your RMD on time and not be the test case. Prohibited transactions. The principally self-dealing is the, is the major prohibited transaction. And unlike in a charity where there's a or in a foundation where it's a modest percentage penalty in an IRA, if you engage in a prohibited transaction, the IRA is no longer an IRA. So some people have question have raised the question as to whether if I have a questionable transaction, if I just put the money for that investment into a separate IRA, do they get aggregated or is it standalone? And Secure 2 says it's standalone. So if I'm going to do an investment that might or might not be a prohibited transaction, I should segregate the money into a separate IRA, maybe even a Roth IRA, because if that if that ceases to be an IRA, there's no immediate tax. I just no longer have a Roth IRA. Uh, my view of things that I'm not sure if they're prohibited transactions or not is not to do them, but 
some clients are more aggressive about it and they want to do it. So that's what they should do. I think we've used up our time, Jonathan. It's all yours. Thank you, Bruce, for that informative talk. I'm planning on to secure 2.0 and the proposed regulations. As with all new legislation, it's important to discuss it with your financial advisor, attorney, or CPA to see how it impacts you and your family. This is especially true for folks approaching retirement where many of these new rules apply. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shank on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.